truly blessed by a beautiful choir, aren't we? The gospel passage for this morning will be coming from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. I invite all to stand as you are able in the body and spirit for the reading of the gospel. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage is not very long in length, but yet it sums up pretty much the entire Bible. Oh, how few words can truly impact our lives and shape our lives. Today, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to be using a few different scripture passages to kind of highlight the areas of what this Bible is all about and how we go about it. You see, the passage that we read today brings us to the scene where Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders at the temple. How did we get here? How do we get to this place in the scripture reading? What is going on? I always like for us to take a look back at the events that lead up to where we are. It helps you to understand the importance and what's really happening here. You see, just a few days earlier in this gospel account, we have Jesus with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We all know that's Palm Sunday. He's coming in. And everybody's coming into town to see what's going on. And we have that there's a lot of commotion and a lot of interest by the religious leaders of all the energy that is coming with him. But see, Jesus is making a statement when he comes into Jerusalem in this fashion. He's stating his messianic authority here. He is making a big claim. Then he cleanses the temple. We know about him running out the money changers, flipping tables. We know that scene got the attention of the religious leaders. That is why they got together to question Jesus in front of the crowds. Their goal was to trip him up, to have him say the wrong things that would get him in trouble, to contradict the scriptures or get him in trouble with the Roman government. So the group of religious leaders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, approach Jesus at this scene here with some loaded questions to see how he would respond. The first group, the Herodians, ask him about taxes. They ask him if it was lawful to give taxes to Caesar. And we know his response. His response was, well, let me see the coin that we use to pay taxes. It's the Roman coin. It has Caesar's face on it. And then he is quoted saying, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And render to God to the things that are God. And then the Sadducees come up. And they're going to try to trip them up here in front of the, in the crowds. And see, they don't believe in the resurrection. 
And so their question was going to be this very long, drawn-out, hypothetical, this what-if statement of resurrection and, and marriage. It says that that same day, Jesus was approached by the Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. And this continued with all seven of them. And last of all, the woman would die. So tell us whose wife will she be in the resurrection, for all seven were married to her. So they're just trying to trip them up by giving this out-of-this-world example. What if this woman married seven brothers? Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Then Jesus' reply was, Your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures and that you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they'll be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether there'll be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you read about this in the Scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. And when the crowds heard him, they were astonished at his teaching. So he's able to rebuke and give good responses to all the religious leaders that are approaching him. Their plan is not working to trip Jesus up on his words. He is truly showing his authority here. But the third group is the group that we get to in our passage It's the Pharisees. They are the teachers of the law. They know the law backwards and forwards, upside down, all different ways. And so they, one of their best, was going to trick him with the greatest commandment question. And the Pharisees love to talk about which commandments were the greatest and which ones were the least and rank them out. They love to have that type of discussion. So they were hoping to trip Jesus up with this question of which one's the greatest commandment. But... Nobody knows Scripture better than Jesus. And so what he would do is he would quote back Scripture to them from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He would quote back from Deuteronomy the passage that said, You are to love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And then he would quote back to them the Leviticus, the one that says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And that would sum up all the teachings of Scripture. That is the greatest commandment. And there again, the crowds were amazed, and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians did not succeed in tripping Jesus up in his words at that time. And so with this, we are given that we're to look at Scripture through the commandment of love. That is the lens in which we should read the entire Bible. There are many difficult passages and stories in the Bible But when you put on the lens of love as you read through it and God's love for us and our love for our neighbor, things begin to make a little bit more sense. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this concept of love. Very powerful. I'm going to read to you what he wrote here in his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about this love, about this lens that we're to look through Scriptures and how we are to live our lives as commanded by God. Paul says, If I can speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but do not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I can move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. But even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things would become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. One of the most powerful passages about love. The greatest commandment in the Bible. The thing that Jesus uses as a response to the religious leaders of his day that would sum up the entire Holy Scripture. And we don't have to go very far to find people that are living out this concept of loving God and loving others. When I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking of different people in history that have lived this out. And for some reason, one person that kept coming to mind was Mother Teresa, which many of us remember Mother Teresa. She was a Roman Catholic nun who devoted her life to serving the poor and the destitute around the world. And she spent many years in Calcutta, India, where she founded the Missionaries of Charity, a religious congregation devoted to helping those in great need. In 1979, she won the Nobel Peace Prize and became a symbolic symbol of charitable and selfless works. And in 2016, the Roman Catholic Church canonized her and made her a saint, Saint Teresa. But many of us remember her works and remember her and have heard about her and definitely can say she was living out the concept of loving God and loving others. Dedicated her entire life to that. She also has many quotes about love. One that I found very uh, interesting. She is quoted saying, It's not how much we do, but how much love we put in the doing. And it's not how much we give, but how much love we put in the giving. Love is the main ingredient. But then there are also stories that are happening in the current events that also highlight what this love looks like. This past week, I ran across a story in the news about a neighborhood that is celebrating Christmas a little bit early for a child that lives on their street. Several homes in a suburb of Cincinnati have already put up Christmas lights and put wreaths on their door, And the reason why is to bring holiday cheer to a two-year-old boy who has a rare type of brain cancer and may not make it to Christmas. His family had the idea to celebrate a little bit early and bring the joy 
of the holiday season to him, but they didn't really have a lot of outdoor decorations. So they posted a message on Facebook asking for help in decorations. And would you believe it? Stranger after stranger would show up to their house, dropping off outdoor decorations, so many that the yard can't hold anymore. And then that idea seemed to seep out into the neighborhood where the neighbors on that street wanted to join in and decorating. So then they began decorating their homes. And then the article goes on to say that people in other neighborhoods and even some surrounding states have decorated their homes in honor of this little boy so that he can have some holiday cheer in his last few moments here on earth. And the parents say that the little boy just absolutely loves it. He wakes up every day to Christmas lights outside of his home and a Christmas tree inside, and he's just happy. God's love. Everybody pulling together for this little boy, being selfless, and seeing him as God sees him, complete. So we can look around and we can read and see example of the greatest commandment lived out amongst us. But there was something that I personally would, was struggling with with this commandment. You see, I'm a, a step one, step two, step three type of guy, project finished. This is how you get to this point. And I was struggling, how do we get to that point of living out God's love in such a fashion in radical love? How do we get to that point? We know about it in our heads. We read the commandments. We see the examples and all of that. But how do we condition our hearts to be in a place where we can ultimately love God with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourselves? That was something that I struggled with. One thing you have to realize is that the English language has a difficulty describing the word love. We give you one word for it, where other languages give you multiple words for love. Love has many meanings. But in our culture, we associate love and tie it to a feeling. That love must have some butterflies and feel good that go along with it. But that's not necessarily the love that the Bible always talks about and that other cultures always talk about. Love is more of an intentional and deliberate act. Is the continual act. It's not just always a feeling. Sure, it does involve a feeling sometimes, or may start with a feeling, but doesn't always become that way. Examples would be parents who get upset with their children may in that moment may be really upset with their child and may have to say, well, I really love you right now, but I'm not happy with you. The feeling of that newborn baby is no longer the newborn baby feeling anymore when they're a teenager or young adult and you're upset with them. Or in a marriage relationship. Sure, that may start out with feel-good feelings of loving the other person, but then as time goes on, love and that relationship becomes more of an everyday choice. Or if you're a caregiver of someone in your family, of a close friend who's got declining health or dementia, And it's a struggle every day to make the choice to love that individual and provide care and be there for them. Love becomes a choice a lot of times. So I think it's very important for us to understand if we're going to love, what is love? What is love? It's not just a feeling, 
sometimes it's a choice. And sometimes it's hard to love everyone. We're called to love our enemies. There are a lot of mean people out there, people that have hurt us. And so experiencing or living out love does not necessarily mean you must put yourself in harmful situations. No, it doesn't. But it does mean you can pray for the mean individuals that have hurt you in your life, that you wish them no ill will. That can be love as well. So love has many meanings and can be gone about in many different ways. And love is a direct gift from God. To fully understand it is that we're the only creatures out of creation that can live out His love. We are made in His image, and love is His image. Other creatures don't have that ability. But we do as his representation here on this earth. And so as we allow ourselves to be transformed by that, we are drawing closer to God and being our true selves. But how do we get there? There's still this question mark of how do we honestly get to that point and not be fake about it, but be genuine. I was reading a book recently written by a professor uh, from the seminary at Candler. Her name is Roberta Bondi. And she wrote a book called, um, basically, To Love as God Loves. And she examined the early church mothers and fathers and how they approached the concept of living out the greatest commandment. There's a lot that our early church fathers and mothers understood that we can learn from. This book, for me, really opened up the how-to for me. The early church fathers and mothers were really interested in looking at what were the walls that we were building around our heart. What were those things that were preventing us from being in our natural state? They called those things passions. But not the emotional passions, but they're more of these attitudes. They saw that we had these certain attitudes about other people and about God that would block the love from entering our hearts. We've all been there. We've all been in our cars driving down the interstate, getting off the interstate ramp exit there in Jackson. And there would be an individual or two standing there by the intersection asking for money. We've all been there. We've all been there, and we've all, some of us may have given money, but many of us may have just kept looking straight ahead, make sure the door was locked, and just watched the light, and just saying, please, please turn green. And as it turns green, we just go about our business and not pay any attention. We've all been there. We've all been at the grocery store. We've all been in our offices. We've all been at school. And there's that one individual they all just loves to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. But we just don't have time for that. We got to go. We got to finish this project. We got to get to that class. I got to get the last steak that's on sale that's the special before it's gone. Bananas are 30 cents a pound. We got to go. Okay? We've all been there. And we all just walk by, ignore the individual, and move on. We've all been watching the TV or on our phones and come across news stories that pull at our emotions and pull at us one way or the other, 
trying to get us to have a reaction, to get riled up and angry at the other side. And then tries to get us on social media or out and by the water cooler, talk about how bad the other side is. We've all been there and we've all had those barriers around our hearts, those attitudes, the pride, the envy, the anger, the jealousy, the fear. Those are the things that our early church fathers and mothers wrestled with. And that is one of the things they called passions that prevent all of us from tapping into God's love and living out the greatest commandment. The second thing that they noted that we need to work on is humility. And we're not talking about humility in a way where you degrade yourself and say that you're no good because you are a creation of God to say that and say that God's creation is no good. That's not what they're talking about with humility or where you do a favor for somebody like, oh, you can cut in front of line here for me. Yeah, come right on ahead. And then moments later come to them and say, hey, remember when I let you cut in line? I really now need this favor. Not that type of humility where you need a, you're expecting a reward later, but true humility. Humility in a sense where you're not afraid of asking for forgiveness. Many of us are afraid to do that, to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. And humility in a way that allows us to see the rest of creation and humanity the way that God does. And that is a challenge. And to give you an idea of how God views humanity, it comes from Scripture, where He sent His only Son to come to this earth to ultimately be sacrificed for not His sins, but for my sins and your sins. Sins that He didn't even create or do, but yet allowed Him to sacrifice and pay our price because He sees humanity as a precious creation. And so humility is seeing the world in that likeness and seeing those individuals on the side of the road asking for money, those individuals that will want to stop and talk to you forever, and seeing those individuals on the news the same way that God does. True humility. So if you're able to identify your passions and see the world as God sees it, you are on your way to experiencing God's love. That right there, our early church fathers and mothers knew were the crucial steps in the how-to process. And it can be difficult. It is an everyday process. Humans, we don't just stop growing. We're not like how we were when we were born. We continue to grow. As we also continue to grow in perfect love as we connect to God. And as we identify our passions and as we live in humility. I do want to leave you with a piece of scripture here that comes from the gospel of Luke. On this greatest commandment. As I said, I'll be weaving in different passages from scripture because the entire book of the Bible is looked through the lens of love. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this similar situation here of Jesus being questioned by the Pharisees on the greatest commandment. But Luke ties in something else. That really, I think a lot of us can be this guy or this person asking him the question. And I think his response is actually his response to all of us. It reads in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, One day 
an expert in religious law, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, not a bad question if you get to ask Jesus one question, right? What do I get to do to inherit eternal life? It's a pretty good question. And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus isn't saying it. He's asking the Pharisee to say it. And Jesus tells him, right, do this and you'll live. But this is where I think most of us can relate to this individual with the next question. He says, wanting to justify his actions, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Maybe there is a, an exception clause where I don't have to love this type of neighbor. Maybe Jesus can give me an exception here. His response is the all too familiar response for many of us. Jesus replied with this story. A, Jew, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him from half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came by, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him. Then a temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan smoothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay the next time I'm here. Now which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man attacked by the bandits? And Jesus would ask. And of course the man replied, Well, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Your neighbor is everyone. For the Samaritan and the Jews who did not get along at all, they were neighbors in God's eyes. We are called to love everyone and to love God. And to do that, we have to be aware of what's blocking our hearts and how we see the rest of creation. Because to be known as a disciple of Christ, you are to be different than the rest of the world. And for someone to point to you and say, there is a Christian, they will also be pointing and saying, there is someone who loves. So may we be that individual, may we be that light in a very dark world that shines the light of love where someone can point out and say, there is the disciple of Christ there because they love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the word that you give us. We're grateful for Jesus Christ and the ministry that he led and the words that he gave us to understand scripture. So Father, help us to identify the things that block us from loving. Help us to draw closer to you and to others this coming week. And may we be the shining light, the shining example of Christ in a world that desperately needs him. Lord, thank you for Jesus and all that he did in dying on the cross for our sins. We pray this in his name. Amen.